0: Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. That's right. This sermon is about the discipline of prayer. Um, in fact, I might put it like this, the cultivation of a life of prayer. I'm not a I'm not a gardener or a farmer, but I've been around them. And it's really neat how the the people who do that sort of thing know what the plant wants, they know what the soil is, and they find a way to arrange the garden so that it's really beautiful for our eyes, and yet it's also perfect for whatever plant needs to be where it needs to be. And um, just put that in your mind because that will come back that'll come back for us. Because in a way, that's also the kind of life that God would like us to cultivate. We till the soil of our own occupations and the life we live and the the families that we raise and are part of. And through all of that, we cultivate, we till that space, that realm, so that we are always giving the input that God asks us to give and it always dependent on the gifts God is giving in the midst of that. And that's the life of prayer, from first to last. It's, it's what humans are made for. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Um, so my prayer this morning, and this is, the, this is what happened to me this morning, you know, as I was pacing, as I often do. Um, my dad does it too. It's Father's Day, so I got to mention my dad. Probably won't be the first time, but he and I pace. We're thinkers, so we pace around. And my parents have, had, and my mom has actually thought, and I think Annie has thought this too, that we need to have like a stoplight <laughs> in the kitchen, especially, so that when we pace, we don't <laughs> run into each other, but um, and other people as well. So when my dad. Would would give us this model of discipleship. He taught me so many things, and often without intending to, I would come to him with a problem, and I'd give him all this thinking that I've done because I'm I'm an overthinker. Who here is an overthinker? Yeah, right. So I'd give him like 24 paragraphs worth of overthinking, and he would give me like, well, d- do you think this? Oh well, <laughs> that's kind of how his advice would often work, you know. So, um, my prayer for this morning, as I was pacing, is that all of all the things that I say, maybe there's this one thing that will just bear fruit. I'm gonna, you know, I probably have a good 24 paragraphs for you, and I hope they're not overthinking. But if even one of them just helps you stop and think, oh then I will have borne fruit. And that's the reward that I seek. And it's okay to seek a reward if it's the right one, right? And the right reward, and this is my prayer, is that God will make abundant fruit out of the work that he's given me to do this morning. And that's the prayer for all of us. That's kind of a model prayer. Lord, let my reward be the abundant fruit that you grow using the work for which you've made me. So take a look at 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. I think we have that up here. Our faithful friends uh, have put that up there for us. That's right. So let me read that for us. You then, my child, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also suffer hardship together as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything." It's an interesting first uh, group of seven verses. Um, I think what it is, is Paul giving Timothy sermon tips. Right? There are these three metaphors, the farmer in reverse order, the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. And he says, now, you think about that, and the Lord will give you understanding for how to use that in your own sermons. And look at verse 1 and 2, actually. Um, What you have heard from me as I testified to the faith before many pass on to other faithful persons who can do the same. That's discipleship, right? Do as I do for others so so they'll do as you do for others, and so on, and so on, and so on. That's discipleship. That's verses one and two, and look at verse seven. It's also a description of discipleship. Think over the words that I say, because the Lord is really your teacher in everything. Discipleship is following Jesus in others, right? John Robinson, the uh, preacher of the group who eventually got on the Mayflower and ended up, they were aiming for Virginia, but they ended up in Massachusetts um, at Plymouth Rock. He, in a sermon that he delivered before they left, he said, follow me no further than you see me following Christ. And I've often thought about that. That's a good word. Follow me no further than you see me following Christ. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. My words only go as far as the Lord will take them. And so that the prayer this morning is that the Lord takes them very far indeed. Um... So the third thing from this passage is that middle bit, verses 3 through 6. Paul has Timothy consider these occupational metaphors, and they're kind of fun, and they're very normal. These are, these, were very, you know, th- these three were particularly famous in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, because you know you, everywhere you go, you'd need a farmer, a soldier, or an athlete. Um, so Paul asks us, the Timothys in this room, to give some thought to these. Hear what I have to say and let the Lord give us understanding. That's how it's done. And so that's what we're going to do. So the first one is the good soldier. There's a couple of points to be made on that. The first one is in verse three. The good soldier of Jesus Christ suffers hardship together. Boy, doesn't that sound like fun? (laughs) Yeah. woo! But here's—it it is actually more fun than you might think. Have you ever been something, been through something both hard and meaningful with people who are close to you? If they weren't close to you, having gone through that together, they became close to you. Anyone who's been part of a sports team that's gone through a lot of struggles and, and managed to pull out a win after a grueling uh, game, um, those of you who have, who have been in the military and have done some very difficult things and suffered hardship as the soldiers in this example, you know that there is, there is no greater way to create a close bond of brothers than to suffer hardship together. And you know what many of those people have told me and others that I've heard is that that makes it worth it. That, close and profound bond that you can get no other way than to suffer hardship together. If uh, we need to do something hard and meaningful together, and the people with whom you do that will be friends forever. And here we are. We are, as a church, partially at least, an army. There are other metaphors, and we'll get to those, but part of what we do is we are soldiers for Christ. Now, we don't fight with the weapons of flesh and blood, hacking people apart, thank you very much, but we do, we do fight the real enemy, which is spiritual, and it's no less real because it's spiritual. In fact, it's more so, and it, we have a bigger fight on our hands, and there's going to be some hardship, and we're going to face that together, and in doing so, we are going to go closer as brothers and sisters in Christ than, than anyone else, than any other institution on the face of this earth if we do it right. If your friends are superficial, or you don't really have any, my suggestion is to buddy up and go hard for Christ together. Because soldiers are loyal to their commander and to each other. We do not whine and leave the church. We stick together and there's gonna be hardship There's going to be slander, there's going to be mistakes, and there's going to be, well, anyone who's been in the military, the old joke is, you know, they call it military intelligence, which is an oxymoron, you know. And I'm afraid the church is no different um, in some respects. I've been a part of it my whole life. I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday, and I'm still here, you know. So, I know. But we don't abandon our post, and we don't abandon the Christ- who enlisted us, and we don't abandon each other. We just don't. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) God, you say it. (laughs) So here's the other thing. You're going to suffer hardship. So if you're going to suffer hardship, the best way is to do it together, right? (laughs) Whatever it is, let us bring us together and not drive us apart. Whatever it is, let it bring us together and not drive us apart. Um, Mistakes were made. You've heard that statement. Yes, forgiveness is real. So that's, that's how we do. They've said about the church that it's the only army that shoots its wounded. That's not really fair. I mean, it is sometimes, but part of the deal is forgiveness needs to be the rule. It's part of what we're for. It's what we model for the rest of the world, and sometimes the mistakes we're made are opportunities for us to model the forgiveness of Christ in a powerful way to the rest of the world. So the expectation that the church is going to be perfect is wrong from the get-go. We are here to forgive one another and let these problems that we have bring us together rather than drive us apart. All right. So there's a second point, point. it's verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since he aims only to please the one who conscripted him. Verse 4. Who is our commander in chief? Jesus. Yeah, right. Who isn't our commander in chief? Everyone else. (laughs) Right? Whose cause is loving, just, righteous, and has every hope of actually succeeding both here and in eternity? Jesus' is cause, that's right. Whose cause doesn't? Everyone else's. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, you know, they're good and we're, 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 we're involved in those as well, but, you know, it, this is God's plan to shake the earth and bring the kingdom. Yeah. We are it. And if you look around right now and you think, us? <laughs> exactly. We are it. Civilian life is also a battle. If you somehow think it's less entangled and less compromised than soldiering for Christ, uh, you haven't really been out there. It could be that you think you have, but Christ is still protecting you from what's really there. Civilian life is harder, lonelier, more cruel, and less worth it. I've been there enough to see that. Civilian life is harder, lonelier, more cruel, and less worth it because it's not for Jesus. He is our king. He is our commander-in-chief, and he is the resurrected son of the living God who is going to bring this entire process to a glorious completion, and nothing is going to stand in his way. So if we follow that commander-in-chief, we will not lose. Even if we lose, we do not lose. If we lose, we get our life given back to us. And then we get to say, neener, 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 to the one who killed us. (laughs) Right? That was not in my manuscript. (laughs) That's one of the goofiest things I have ever said. But it's true. It's true, (laughs) we win, we do, so no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits because it's a mess. Now, a moment ago I said, sometimes we're a mess as well, but we're the kind of mess that forgives each other and gets resurrected, so choose which hardship you would like to join. I think this one's probably going to be a lot better, as hard as it might be. Alright. The the next one is the athlete. That's in verse 5. What is this about? Uh, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Huh. I think this is probably about courage and especially integrity. Integrity. Run a genuine race. Throw an actual curveball if you're a baseball pitcher, not one where you have to use sticky stuff, right? Yeah, right? People are going to be throwing out names here pretty soon, so I better keep going. (laughs) Um, Finish the Tour de France without doping, right? Run the race for real. Run the genuine race. we'll get to what we're talking about in a minute. You only cheat yourself out of God's glory and reward if you rewrite the rules in order to say that you won when you didn't, right? Uh, if I put a 26.2 bumper sticker on my car, but I've only run a 5K, <laughs> right? And someone asks me my time for this 26.2, I'm probably, I don't know, An hour? You know, it's, I, it's me who's going to suffer, <laughs> not just by being exposed, but because in my own heart, I'm like, I didn't run a 26.2. I didn't run a marathon. What is this about in this context? I think this is maybe Paul's way of referring to false teachings that fudge the gospel to make it more acceptable and less offensive to human prestige. If you read the rest of Second Timothy, I think that's what you'll get. And you should, by the way. I mean, I'm just looking at seven verses, and I always read the rest of it, so. Um, But yeah. When Paul and his co-workers were being denounced and slandered, sneered at, and falsely imprisoned, false teachers arose who, in essence, said, yeah, our gospel is not like his. Our gospel doesn't get us in quite as much trouble. Ours is more in sync with celebrated causes and popular pieties of our time. Ours is more sophisticated, more cultured, more ennobling, and not as servile. Ours gets us admired rather than in trouble. Our gospel is better than Paul's. Ours is 26.2 on the back of our car, even though we're going to run a 1K. <laughs> so... When Paul says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, he's saying don't sell out the gospel. Don't sell out God's truth. Don't make it easy so that you can say you won when you haven't, because you will not get a crown. You will not. You'll get adulation. You might get some people who are saying, wow, that's really cool. And you might get followers and you might get all kinds of stuff, but you will not get God's crown. Preach the gospel. What does that mean? Well, Jesus really died and he really rose from the dead. Sin is real, but so is repentance and forgiveness. That's kind of a nutshell version, but yeah, so that's it. But the civilian world is always going to hate forgiveness when guilt is how they obligate obedience to their agenda, and they're always gonna hate the righteous for not supporting their favorite sin. So if it's not one thing, it's another, and sometimes it's both. I'm saying, it is what it is. We're just gonna have to hang in there and preach the gospel, right? And we're gonna be winsome about it, and we're gonna think through how to do it, and how to enculturate, and how to model it properly. We're gonna do all of those things. But we're not going to cheat and make it easy. We're not going to make it hard either, but it's like, you know, it already is what it is. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Is that easy to believe? Well, I've not seen too many of them myself, but without it, this is a non-starter. We shouldn't even be here. But we are here because it happened. And sin is real because we feel it. We've done it. We're ashamed of it. And we know. There's no getting around that. And they know, too. That's why they're mad at us, the world, the civilian world. I mean, otherwise, why wouldn't they care? Uh, but they do. And forgiveness is real, too. And sometimes we're Pharisees, and we hate that almost worse than we hate people calling our stuff sin. You know, because, like, uh, you know, to be able to hold something over someone is the way you get to control them. And it's hard to give that up. But forgiveness is real too. And so if it's not one thing, it's another. You're too forgiving. Oh, you're too lax. It's like, well, we're always too something. <laughs> we're too much Jesus. And he got crucified. And Paul got in prison. I think Peter got into some trouble as well. I mean, you know, this is what we're here for. It's part of the hardship we're talking about. So we don't run the race in such a way that we cheat. The gospel stays what it needs to be. Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, and don't compromise the gospel. So that's what Paul said, actually, in the, in the first couple of verses. He also said, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, translation, that is the gospel that got in, in trouble, but he preached anyway, <laughs> I entrust to loyal persons who will be able to teach others also. That's discipleship. That's what we're in for. All right. So that's the athlete. The next one, the last one, is the farmer. The hard-working farmer who must have the first share of the crops. Verse 6. So I guess the first point is it is hard work. who, Who here has been on a farm or has been around a farmer or who is the member of a farm family? Yeah, some of us have been. It's hard work. Now, the good news is it's not hard work all the time. Sometimes, you know, in the wintertime, you're kind of just making, fixing the machinery, depending on which kind of farming you do, and stuff like that. Uh, I grew up on a farm, but I was never a farmer, so I got to watch them work. That's <laughs> <It was> great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, it's hard work. But here's the cool thing about a farmer. A farmer is one who cultivates not only the fields, but a relationship with the creator who gives the increase. Think about that for a minute. That is true whether the farmer is a believer or not. Who is the farmer cooperating with when he tills the field, fertilizes it, waters it, gets the bugs out of it? Chris, where's (laughs) and then and and gets the, the weeds out of it? Who do you think he's cooperating with when he does that? He's cooperating with the maker who made the microbes, who made the plants, who made the earth, who made the water, who made the whole integrated system we call ecology, which makes this whole thing work. A farmer cooperates with his maker, and all of that hard work is co-labor with the one who made it. And that is a really cool thing because that is what our prayer life should be. The farmer cultivates not only the land, but a relationship to the one who made it and who makes it grow. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8, uh, this is a, the context here is, is some people in Corinth had become followers of Apollos and others had become followers of Paul. And Paul's trying to say, hey, none of that matters. We're both farmers. One plants, the other waters but God is the one who gives the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He who plants and he who waters are one in purpose. We're trying to do the same thing here. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. So this means the work is real, but it is God who makes things grow. And that's what makes the reward also real. God makes it grow and gives the reward to his workers. It's just wonderful. That whole notion of cooperation, that even that God so graciously pulls back on his power and says, okay, you guys have a role to play here. That is just astounding. It is so cool. Now, another word for that is work. Oh, no. (laughs) What? I like the other, you know, but think about it. The image of the father, well, actually, let me say it this way. We're, this is Father's Day, and there's this really cute thing that the Dyson vacuum cleaner company has come up with. They've actually made little miniature toddler-sized vacuum cleaners that really work. Oh, yeah. They're probably too expensive. I mean, it's Dyson, right? I don't know what's going on there, but right? But like, okay, your engineering is awesome, but really that awesome? Anyway, that's a side note. The, but they have these little toddler-sized vacuum cleaners that really work. And so, you know, when, when dad or mom says, oh, you want a vacuum with me? Oh, that's really cute. You know, it's not just a toy vacuum cleaner that doesn't actually pick up dirt. It's the real thing. And I'm thinking, that is a great image of what God did when he created us. He made it so that our, our input actually kind of works. It's cute. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? He actually pulls back and gives, "Yeah." Yeah, you got some of that up off the carpet. <laughs> That's great. <gross. laughs> you just ran over the cord. Oh shoot. <laughs> Here, let me pull that out for you. <laughs> you know, but it's it's real. God makes it real. And the reward is we actually get to do that and we get to see the result and it's like God said, "Yes." Here, let me help you. <laughs> All of those things are true, and that is what a prayer life is. It's really cool. So don't call it work, call it making your father proud. And it's his grace to us that we get that. I'm, I'm reminded of the older son in the prodigal son story, who says, "I've been working for you all this time," and he thinks of his relationship with his father in these contractual terms. And the father turned around and said, "Son, you've you've been with me this whole time, eating at my table, enjoying our family, and enjoying the meaningful work that we've been doing together as this team. <laughs> Why do you put it this way, like work?" and some sort of reward system. The reward is the fact that you're my son, and this is what we're doing. And now there's this other reward that this other son who had been wandering, doing his own thing in a cruel, lonely, hateful world has finally decided that this world of the true father is better. He's come back, let's celebrate that, and stop being resentful. Man, the more I get around in this world, I realize that one of the perhaps the first, first and original sin is, is resentment. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> so, that's the farmer. A farmer is one who cultivates not only the fields, but a relationship with the Creator who gives the increase. And so, this is our prayer Lord, let my reward be the abundant fruit that you grow, using the work for which you've made me. As I was pacing around this morning, um, I don't know if this happens to other people who have led Bible studies or or preached sermons, but you start to have imagination, your imaginings of of what it's going to be like and and what your faces are going to look like when a a good point happens and you start to, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. (laughs) And then I started to pray because I said, I'm not praying right now, I'm just imagining some goofy scenario. So I wanted to pray, and I said, you know what? As, as strange as that scenario was in my mind, it's, it's, there's something that God says is right about it in the sense that he wants us to work for a reward. The question is, is it the right one? And I don't care if you think I, I did a good job. I care, like, is this gonna bear any kind of fruit at all in my life and in yours? And so that's all I want. This, so this prayer I just prayed a moment ago is, just, is all that I wanted. I like just make this work that I've done fruitful that you grow it because you've asked me to do what you made me to do. And I think if we pray that in discipleship and train others to pray that and to think like that, then the God's, God's kingdom is, is going to advance. And, and we're going to start seeing some, some plants grow out of these seeds. And those plants will in turn Yield seeds, which will get planted and which will turn into plants, which yield seeds, and on it will go. That's the idea. That is the idea. Here's what I have to end with we're going to shift back to the Garden of Eden, because I think all of that, what we're saying this morning, has been what humans are made for. We were made for that relationship. Adam tilled God's garden and walked with God. He did both. A human is more than an animal, but less than God. We co-labor with God and exercise dominion in God's image. What does it mean to, to be in God's image? It means that we're kind of mini kings. Uh, in the ancient Near East, uh, there, was, there were depictions that you could see on the walls of Egypt and Mesopotamia and Babylon and some other places. And basically what it was was there was a depiction. It wasn't idolatrous, but it was a depiction of God. And then there was a depiction of the king, who was kind of this little (laughs) mini-God. And when God says, don't make an image of me ever, the reason why? You are. You are that image. And we depict who God is by working with him and depending on Him, working with Him, and depending on Him, and modeling Him for the rest of creation. That's what we do. That's who we are. We are made as human beings, male and female, in God's image. So we don't need another image of God. We are the image of God, right? So keep that. That's what we do. And he gave us all these great mighty things to do, and so humans are made for prayer from the very beginning. Prayer is petition. We ask. Now, here's the thing that's interesting to me. Have you ever imagined a world where we didn't have to ask? Like, God, why am I in this situation at all? Why have you brought me to this dramatic point where I'm really nervous about something and I have this big job to do that's too big for me and I don't even want to go through this and this is really hard and God, why do I have to pray to you? Why can't you just fix it? The world was never made for that. The world was never made to be perfect in the sense of some still perfect non moving system. It was always made for us to have a job and something to do and something to improve with God's help and independence on God. That's, that was true from the beginning. So we'll just take a look at, we'll skip to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 23, and I'll prove this point in the last few seconds, a few minutes. Even in the garden, before the fall, God said there was at least one thing that was not good. Do you see where it is? Yeah. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then what does he do? He does all this other stuff. Like, what? Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And he called one of them dog man's best friend. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> but for Adam, there was still not found a helper fit for him. That was before the fall. There was something not good before the fall. And look, just to take a look at that process and just think through what that is. I'm gonna present Adam with a number of inadequate solutions so that he'll know that they're not quite adequate. I am teaching him what is not good and what are not quite good solutions to that. I want Adam's input. Why? Because you're cute. You have that little Dyson vacuum cleaner. (laughs) That's right. So it's like, what, what, what are you gonna call these animals? How are you gonna order the creation that I've made through your language and culture? He invited that input. And he hasn't even got to the part where he fixed the problem yet. You know, it's so cool. He actually wants our input. And, you know, that just astounds me. It just really does. That's what God does with us. But not a suitable partner was found for him. There was still something not good about this otherwise perfect creation because there's no fall yet. Adam learned all the ways how his problem could not be solved and then God solved his problem. He put him to sleep. I'm gonna to have to take care of this on my own, Adam, thank you very much. Put him to sleep, took a rib, and made from that rib his partner, the perfect partnership from all time. And then when Adam saw, he said, this at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, oh my goodness. This is the most perfect solution. And do you know why Adam knew it was the most perfect solution? Because he had learned all the other ones that were not quite perfect. Do you see how God cares to lead you along through a process to come to know how good his solutions are? That is what we were made for. That is prayer. And so if we ask the question, why don't you just fix it? That's not the world God created, and that's not what he created us for. He wants to lead us through and say, God, wow, I had thought about these other things, but wow, that, that, is, that is the world that God created. You don't get another world. So here's the thing that, that we do sometimes is we, in our pain and in our distress, we imagine an alternative world if we were God. And we would do it so God would just fix it. And sometimes we pray to him with that in our mind. Well, that's not how it works. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Every time that you get anxious, there's something that God wants to show you. So turn to him and pray. And he'll show you. And it's going to be a process, probably. So just get used to it. That's what we're here for. That is our life. Final point. The whole problem that comes up in the next chapter, and I'm not going to start it with you, but it's chapter 3 of Genesis, is what other voice do we listen to? This is how God teaches us the difference between good and evil or good and not good. We've just seen it. Here's a problem. Here are some not as good solutions, but here's the perfect one. And I've led you through it and I'm teaching you good and evil and how we're going to go through this together. That's, that's what God does. That's his voice. The other voice is, "Eh, God's trying to hold out on you. He's not actually good. And I'm going to give you this other voice, and I'm going to give you this this other source of knowledge of good and evil, apart from God. It's the voice of resentment. It's the voice of God isn't running this world like he ought to, and I can do better, and I can be like God. That's just how that is. And when they pulled on that, all the threads came loose, and they found themselves hiding from God. God. And in a moment, I'm going to have the people come forward who lead people in prayer and who who want to receive the folks who want to unhide. Because after Adam and Eve pulled on that thread that pulled everything apart, this relationship that God had that was going to teach them what they needed to know, in close, prayerful dependence on God, instead went another way and went without Him, It's just brought shame and disaster, and they hid from God. And the prayer that I want you guys to offer as we stand is to unhide, unhide, because God is calling for you. You don't have to hide anymore. You can't anyway. And while you and God had this conversation, there may be consequences. But even so, it's going to be better with him than out there in Satan's world. Because he's just out to destroy you. And he fooled you by thinking that that was a better world. There is no better world than the one God has actually made. And he wants to share with you and to work with you to make it the kind of paradise that he's going to bring for us. So unhide. Stop hiding and just come forward and pray. And folks, come forward to, to receive those who will pray and you can pray in the meantime while that's happening. And we'll let the worship team begin their, their, their song. But Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will lead us to see what glorious, great good it is to be your sons and daughters. How you let us work and you take our input and you even endorse it sometimes. And God, how you delivered just what we need and that that was what our job as your farmers (laughs) was meant to be from all along. And then you can restore us to to be that, the many kings who work your kingdom in dependence on you. God, I pray that you will help us to unhide from that great vocation and pray and pray and pray and stay close to you throughout all that you've given us to do. This we pray in your son's name.